criminal special interests have effective control of many municipal governments and government arms. The most notable case, school boards. Thanks to three exploits of block voting, nonpartisan races, and off-cycle elections, teachers' unions gain a structural advantage beyond their ideological support in electing the people who set standards, enforce policies, and fund public school systems. Joining me to discuss how special interest groups take advantage of municipal election structure is Max Eden, a research fellow in education policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Max, welcome to the program. Before we begin, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what you do at AEI? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I also direct our conservative education reform network, which is uh, an effort to take kind of some of AEI's core competencies as a beltway think tank, which is to say commissioning research work and policy ideas, convening people and trying to, to push ideas forward to start to take that out into the states where the real uh, action and education will be for the next few years, the foreseeable future. Before that, I was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where a lot of my work uh, revolved around school safety and uh, disciplinary policies that endangered student safety. And before that, I was uh, started off my career at the American Enterprise Institute as a research assistant. So I have been uh, effectively reading, researching, and writing about education for my entire career. All right. So let's proceed through the three exploits in local election systems that special interest groups, but the special interest group that we're probably most interested in, especially in the school board space is teachers unions, uh, use to gain influence beyond their numbers and beyond what would be their sort of natural level of public support. Uh, you put out a brief, a research brief, white paper for AEI, uh, recommending that school board elections be moved on cycle. Uh, can you summarize the argument for that and what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So there are kind of a, there are governance arguments for it, kind of philosophical arguments for it, and practical arguments for it. Right from a from a governance point of view, uh, when school board elections are held off cycle, turnout let's, can and be. Let's, and let's be clear: off cycle is not in November's of federal election years, or in the case of Virginia, New Jersey, because and uh, Louisiana. Kentucky and uh, Mississippi, weird odd numbered years because they elect their governors in weird odd numbered years. Correct. We are, and we're we're talking, you know, May, April, June of odd years, <laughs> times that uh, I think your average citizen doesn't even know that there is an election, uh, but the teachers unions certainly do know, and so you have these extremely low turnout elections that might feature something between six to eight percent voter turnout when there for, is kind for of comparison only... a presidential election these days is I want to say over 70 a midterm election is over 50 and a uh, odd numbered year state election is close to 50. Right no and that's very good comparison another kind of clever bit of uh of comparative explanation was offered by Michael Hartney in a paper for the Manhattan Institute, which my research brief kind of cited uh, substantially, where he pointed out, you know, for all the democratic talk about voter suppression and ways that we can reform our voting laws, uh, if you take every single measure in H.R. 1, the For the People Act combined, it would not nearly equal the H amount H.R. 1, of for those who don't remember, we've discussed it a couple times on this podcast with a couple of guests, that is the omnibus federal election takeover that would get rid of voter ID, uh, that would uh, make, a, make a number of changes to election administration and bump them up to the federal level. 
Yes, and every one of those changes is at least theoretically or you know said to be intended to boost voter turnout, right? Um, but moving a school board election from, say, May of an odd year to November of an even year would boost it by more than all of those combined, I think a multiple of more than all those combined. Um, and so what happens when you have off-cycle elections, six to eight percent turnout, and you have a built-in political machine that can turn people out, is you get full capture of what should be a democratically accountable local institution by a special interest group, in which case, in this case, that being primarily the teachers' unions. So one straightforward argument uh, is that, you know, kind of democracy, voting, civic participation is an intrinsic good. We, we want people to be involved in the political process. This is it, something it, it kind is of... Good, it is good for the citizens to participate in the government. Yes, and it is hopefully good for the government to have citizens participate in it, to have kind of voices be heard, have preferences be articulated. Uh, and what Michael Hartney showed in his brief in the, for the Manhattan Institute, based on some, some research he's published, is that this, this matters. This matters in terms of how school boards are governed. He did this uh, kind of clever study where he looked at school districts in California where a law kind of forced them to move on cycle from off cycle. And he noted that in more conservative districts, when uh, when elections were held off cycle, it didn't it didn't really matter. <laughs> the school board members mm -hmm. were still more liberal. But when elections were held on cycle, all of a sudden, individual school board member ideology shifted to become substantially more conservative. The chances of a school board being majority conservative increased dramatically as the share of conservative voters increased dramatically, and the both fiscal and kind of education policy preferences. Of elected officials more closely mirrored those of their constituents. And so basically, so on-cycle elections mean more people vote, and the con the consequence, at least that was identified in this Manhattan Institute paper, is that when more people voted, the ideology of the school board is more in line with the revealed ideology of the community based on its vote in general elections. Yes, that that is exactly it, and it's uh, it's one of those very commonsensical <laughs> findings uh, that. That ought to surprise no one, but but nobody had quite been able to find a way to empirically, defensively demonstrate. And so this this all becomes, I think, particularly relevant, uh, especially this year, post the Yunkin election, post some of the school board elections we've seen across the country. There is this growing sense of dismay by parents as to you know how did our schools become so profoundly culturally out of step with what we want for our kids. And a big part of that answer is that while schools theoretically should be a locally democratically accountable institution, they by and large are fundamentally not. They are by and, the, mm -hmm. the appearance of democracy is effectively subverted by what could be called, and, and what I called in that report, just the, the, the greatest unheralded voter suppression campaign of the 20th century. Um, and parents are... Are, are starting to take up arms, starting to figuratively, of course, in case oh, Mayor yeah, Garland's yeah, listening. No, yeah, right, right. You know, <laughs> um, the, uh, the National School Boards Association. Uh... <laughs> yes, figuratively, purely figuratively. Um, but they're starting to get involved. They're starting to want to make their voices heard. But in many cases, they will be running into this kind of almost insuperable obstacle of this impediment to traditional democracy, which are off-cycle elections. Well, and then there's... 
Another one that you mentioned in your piece and that I have taken note of, and that is the ostensibly nonpartisan race. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of having a normal, like a general election for a congressman or a general election for president or a general election for governor, uh, where you have, you know, a candidate from the Republican Party, a candidate from the Democratic Party, a candidate from the Green Party, a candidate from the Libertarian Party, you know, whatever. Uh, you just have a bunch of names. And my suspicion is that given the teachers' union's permanent organization and their permanent political fund and their political uh, permanent organizational capacity— that this basically turns these nonpartisan school board elections into elections in a one-party state. Yeah, I, w- I would say your suspicion is very, very reasonably, reasonably well-founded. Um, you know, there's there's some. I think some people are inclined to react negatively, just somewhat instinctually, when you talk about, hey, I think there should be a partisan affiliations next to school board candidates' names because people don't really want to think of education as something that's kind of political in a partisan sense, right? And and in some ways that, that's reasonable, but we have to understand that that is not a perspective that is shared by teachers unions, right? There was this uh, mm-hmm. incredible, incredibly honest, frankly, quote given by the, the teachers union president of LA who said, education is political. We like to think that it isn't, but we all know that it is. And she went on to say, you know, it's okay, basically, I'm close paraphrase here, it's okay if our babies can't like don't know math well and can't read good. They know that what the words coup and insurrection mean. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. No. It was, so, she was defending. She was defending teaching critical race theory or critical race theory aligned politically charged things, despite the fact that LA's sort of basic reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, scores are not great. Right, and she was defending that as a as a good thing. Right, um, and that that is a that is a preference set that is not uncommon to her. That I, I that is I think pretty reasonably widely held by teachers union political staff across the country, and yet I mean, I mean and if you look at if you look at UTLA specifically, uh, United Teachers Los Angeles last summer, uh, so summer of twenty twenty, when the schools were all locked down, they put out this uh, this manifesto that basically said that they were not going to reopen the schools until a whole litany of socialist programs were adopted by either Los Angeles Unified School District, Los Angeles City, the state of California, the national government. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing politics. Oh, very, very clearly and very explicitly so. And so, you know, in face of that reality, in face of the reality that the American Federation of Teachers you know, donates about, I think, 99% to Democratic candidates over Republican candidates. And, and, the, and, NEA, and the NEA is not much different. Not much different. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit more mild, but I, I don't think, I don't think substantially so. Not enough to give them any, any credit, certainly. You know, one argument for putting partisan affiliation on is that parents just deserve to know. They just, like, uh, each, whether or not their school board candidate shares that philosophical perspective, because chances are, if they are being endorsed by and supported by the local teachers union, there's a good chance that they do. And without that, you know, D next to their name or an R next to the name to suggest that they more likely do not share that perspective, uh, parent decisions, citizen decisions are being made 
much more blindly than they could be. So there's a, a very basic kind of information to voter argument in favor of allowing partisan affiliations to appear. Right. And especially, and especially when you've got other races on the ballot, whether that's whether it's an off-cycle election and you have, you know, mayor and city council, or whether it's an on-cycle election and you have congressmen and senators and potentially presidents and governors, uh, you know, being able to have you know, you, you may not have the time. Those of us who don't work in policy, those of us who don't work in Washington, D.C. think tanks, you know, may not ha- don't necessarily have the time to go all the way down the ballot to come to an independently discerned decision for who you vote for. Uh, but having that heuristic of knowing this candidate is with the Republican Party and believe, probably believes mostly Republican Party things— or with the Democratic Party and believes mostly Democratic Party things, you know, that's a that's a, a shortcut that voters can use to pick a candidate more closely aligned with their viewpoint. No, absolutely. And, you know, beyond that, there's also a, a kind of a certain educational function to this, right? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, it I think some folks might maybe instinctively recoil the thought of, of, of choosing school board members within Republican primaries. But first, we have to remember that the current system of off-cycle elections, when they're held in March, April, <laughs> May, June, they're effectively being held within Democratic Party primaries, uh, wherein even if you get elected school board members who don't fully share that perspective, uh, they're going to they're gonna go with the flow. They're going to have a whole constellation of organizations around them, you know, most most particularly, and I think most notably for the the average listener's you know awareness at this point, in, in a way it's kind of both tragic but also very fortunate. The National School Board Association, you know, there are a whole host of ostensibly, allegedly nonpartisan, non-ideological organizations you, that you are have, just you there. Have written, you have written on these organizations and called them an education deep state. If you could yes. elaborate on that, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So, I mean. I, I might take even a, a step a step back to elaborate on it, if you don't mind, to, to sure. you know, kind of why are these elections being held off cycle in the first place? Um, these elections are being held off cycle in the first place because early late nineteenth and early twentieth century progressives uh, decided that education was too important to be left to politics. It needed to be kind of the province and the reserve of a particularly well-educated technocratic elite, right? And that... Very, very, very Woodrow Wilson. Very Woodrow Wilson. And that argument, you know, it, it, it had a certain plausibility at the time. You, you can imagine why people thought it made some sense. Um, yeah, in, in many ways, it was a reaction to the big city machines like Tammany Hall that were fairly openly corrupt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, um, it's it, it's certainly comprehensible, but I think, you know, a, a, a century on, uh, two really notable things have happened. I mean, one, the theory that this removed and insulated and allegedly self-interested group of experts would actually yield substantial, notable increases in the quality of governance has been rather kind of given the lie. And the other thing is that it's a very different class of progressive experts who kind of credential and acculturate and promulgate themselves less in terms of specific domain expertise and more in terms of signaling fealty to a particularly to a particular ideology that in, right now happens to be very hostile to parents' interest, to the thoughts of families. And so you have all of these organizations 
uh, that were built up during the course of the early, mid, late 20th century that have all been kind of were originally built with the idea that we are going to help marshal and uh, exercise and, and aid and facilitate the diffusion of expertise into a system so that it can be better governed. And at some point within the past, you know, five, 10, maybe 15 years, depending on where you actually want to count it, these organizations have kind of turned. They have it's had a, it's a, certain... a fairly straightforward story of special interest group capture. Yes, that... and then and then and then the nature of those special interest groups also fundamentally changing, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. from being you know purportedly disinterested uh, pur- purveyors of expertise to being self-described anti-racist kind of pseudo-revolutionary bodies. And, and anti so, anti-racism again being Ibram X Kendi's sort of critical race theory adjacent ideology that basically every democratic decision in the United States should be subject to his personal revision. Yes, um, and you know, as as he said, the only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy for present discrimination is future discrimination. It gets it gets pretty dark pretty quickly if you take more than a few seconds to think about that. You know, in a <laughs> Right, in, yeah, a, yeah. In, in a reflective setting. But the problem is, and I'm, I'm going to take this back to the, the case for partisan elections in a second, the problem is that even when your kind of centrist, your center-right, your conservative school board member comes in, he or she will be uh, bombarded with articles, essays, reports from all of these organizations that don't directly advertise themselves as being Kendi-esque, you know, revolutionary tribunals Mm -hmm. that advertise themselves as being, uh, you know, just the same kind of institutions that they wanted to be when they were set up decades ago. And school board members will be somewhat co-opted by them unless they come in with a really particular political education of their own. And that kind of political education can be fostered and facilitated in the primary process, as candidates have to look into the issues, have to articulate the issues, have to jockey amongst themselves about the issues, it actually raises a sense of political consciousness and, and, and a degree bringing, of political and awareness. The, and bringing the political parties into the process uh, also, it takes away that sort of single, what again, what I call the single party democracy issue with the teachers unions. They mm-hmm. can then have... Other interest groups, you would have probably organized parents groups, you would have advocacy groups for various issues. I mean, again, on the Democratic side, you might have criminal justice people, you might have uh, different degrees of support for critical race theory and critical race theory adjacent views on the Republican side. You, you know, again, maybe parents' interests, maybe different uh, levels of social conservative interest. Uh, and having to reach out and having to to at least hear out those different factions uh, would create true two, if not more, party democracy. Yeah, and 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 would yield uh, would hopefully yield schools that uh, are are more reasonably reflective of the wishes of local citizens and and parents in particular. And if such a thing were to you know, come to pass, then I think that, you know, schools that want to teach these things that uh, serve students whose parents want them to know these things, they, they can. And schools that serve students whose parents want them to learn something else, they can too. We can kind of start to make good on 
the, the pluralistic promise that's inherent in the notion of American local democratic civic life. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. part of the reason why things have gotten so out of whack is because there's been this massive structural barrier to, frankly, America working like working the way that it should. Well, and then, and, even, and, and then that brings us neatly to my third exploit, which is a lot of school boards are elected by slate, where mm -hmm. instead of casting one vote for your member of Congress and one vote for your state legislator, you vote for five people to fill five seats. And especially under the sort of conditions of one-party democracy with the teachers' unions that prevail in, uh, in a lot of school board elections now, that basically means that even in a divided area, you can end up with a school board that is entirely pro-teachers union or entire, I mean, theoretically, one that is entirely anti-teachers union, although that is far less likely for the institutional reasons that we have been describing. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, that's absolutely the case, right? I mean, you, you have kind of uh, one, one body, one organization, one special interest that kind of wakes up every day and plans and plots as to how they can defend their turf and their privileges and their prerogatives. And on the other side, you have occasionally awakened parents who may or may not be able to get elected to the degree that they can organize amongst themselves. Another nice thing about making school board elections not only on cycle but also partisan is that you can get uh, another kind of apparatus into the game. I think the absolute worst thing that could happen that could come out of all this, it, it, it's a huge fear of mine, and I, I hope that any you know, citizen or legislator listening takes it to heart, is that this debate that we're having right now as a country will end up going the way of the common core, where you win the public debate, which is to say you win the debate in terms of the, the kind of public definition, the other side stops defending the positions it used to defend, they either implicitly or explicitly concede that you were correct, the country moves on, but absolutely nothing actually changes. You know, the common core mm -hmm. is still uh, kind of the the curriculum it, 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 of the it land. Sort of and, burrows and, into the, it burrows into the substrate, you know, after the, after the year or two of, of tribulation and state legislatures doing state legislature things, it's so embedded in the substrate that they can just move on to the next thing. Exactly. And so if, if, if you know, if we actually want to address the issue of critical race theory in schools, somewhat broadly defined, other kind of cultural pathologies that we are now seeing being inflicted on children, it frankly won't be enough for a few parents to run for school board, flip the school board for a couple of years, and then maintain the status quo. You will have to change the way that school board races are run and bring other interests and kind of power groups and apparatuses to bear in a way that has the chance at actually sustaining itself. Because uh, a lot of this stuff has become very deeply rooted. It won't go away in one or two years. It will only go away if there is a, a kind of countervailing political force, countervailing set of interests and intuitions and beliefs that can kind of apply sustained pressure to these local institutions. And uh, for we can pat ourselves on, on the back about Yunkin winning, about you know school board races here and there winning, uh, but we're on track to losing in the long run unless we kind of change the structural it's a matter, it's a democratic of rules the of the road. Yeah, the fundamental incentives of the system have to change in order for 
the change that somebody like a Governor Yunkin or like some of these school board officials, these newly elected school board people want to create for that to stick. Yes, that's absolutely the case. All right. Well, once again, I'd like to thank Max Eden of the American Enterprise Institute for joining us. We will include links to his work on off-cycle school board elections and the education deep state in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. 